Good morning, Antioch. I'm excited to be with you this morning. Um, but first, before we jump into the word, why don't we go ahead and bow our heads and pray over what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We give you heartfelt, passionate, loving worship this morning. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and minister as only you can minister. God, would you anoint every ear to hear, every eye to see you in the scriptures? Would you speak to us all this morning and lead us in the way everlasting? In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. If you were with us, if you were with us a few weeks ago, Jonathan spoke, uh, spoke and his sermon was entitled Hope in an Unpredictable God. It was an incredible sermon. And if you haven't listened to that, I'd highly encourage you to do so. At the beginning of his sermon, he took a little bit of time and he talked a little bit about the church calendar. And there are scripture readings, predetermined scripture readings that different church faiths and traditions go to every day. And even throughout that, uh, the Advent season, there are predetermined scriptures that people go to in order to preach from, in order to meditate on. Uh, they use them for their devotionals. And that's what we've been using in this series. And so uh, I have uh, jumped in and uh, into these readings. And today's primary text will be found in John chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter one. You know, when I was preparing my sermon, I actually spent uh, a decent amount of time preparing a sermon that I'm not gonna be preaching this morning. Isn't that wonderful? You know, uh, I was, uh, my father being in the military, I moved around a whole lot as a child growing up. And there was a stint uh, in which we lived in a small cow town. If you have never lived in a cow town, you probably don't know what that means. But for those of you that have, a cow town is someplace where everywhere you go in town, you can still smell cows. I mean, it's, that's how small it is. And uh, where we lived, it was backed up against a giant uh, field with thousands of heads of cattle. And so, yeah, they would break through, they'd get in our land. My mom would give me a broom and say, chase it off. I was in fifth grade and it was quite an experience. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, in, in this neighborhood, uh, there was this big canal. It was a big irrigation canal. And I, it was the bane of uh, my disciplinary existence and the, the bane of my mother's life, I think, and patience. And she would say, Daniel, don't play in the river. Don't do it. You'll get muddy. You'll get wet. And every, it was like, I just, it was irresistible. It was like, just, I couldn't stay away. It was beautiful. You know, the water and the feces. I mean, it was, it was incredible. I loved it. In fifth grade, it was the coolest. And so I, uh, I actually, you know, one day um, decided I was going to build a bridge across this canal that was at least like 10 feet across. And so I, uh, I climb up in this big tree and I tie this rope off. And then I walk the long way, about a mile out of the way to a bridge, come around to the other side. And I get this, this rope to the other side. And I think, okay, I found those stakes that they drive in uh, at construction sites. Not rebar, but you know what I'm talking about, those big stakes. And I, and I dug so deep as a fifth grader. 
And I just, I just put it in there and I, I pounded all these rocks. Then I go all the way back around and I have my brother who's five years younger than me. I'm in fifth grade. So he's in first grade. And I say, Pat, just stand right there. I need you to stand with that stake. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to shimmy across. Now we're about, okay, when I was a kid, church happened Sunday mornings and Sunday night. So Sunday afternoon, I think to myself, perfect. This is perfect. This is Kairos. This is, this is an opportune moment for me to try my bridge. So I jump out there and I'm like crawling across and shimmying across. And wouldn't you know it, the, the, the stake starts to move like this towards the water. And I'm going down like just, and I'm thinking to myself, all, all I can think of is my mom's going to be so mad. Because I'm wearing church clothes and my brother and I start yelling, Pat, grab the stake, a one-year-old. So my brother's over there and he's, he's grabbed it like this and he's pushing with his feet against the ground. You see, you see what I'm saying? And, uh, and I'm just screaming and I'm the rage that I know my mom will have for me. I'm contributing and pouring upon my brother. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm just going after it. And wouldn't you know it, I feel the water just start seeping into my clothes and I just let go and I swim to the other side and I'm sopping wet and I'm all muddy and I get home and, and I think to myself, well, that was unexpected. <laughs> you know, now looking back on that time, um, not so unexpected really. When I look back on that moment, I think, wow, my expectations were so just wrong. You know, and I took those five minutes to share that, to tell you that I had that same experience with this sermon. <laughs> I had a certain expectation for this sermon. I was going to preach a sermon that was such a blessing to you. And you know what? This morning, nope. <laughs> isn't, isn't God wonderful? Has God ever done that to you? You have a certain set of expectations walking into a certain season, and you come out on the other side going, what in the world just happened? Well, grab onto your seats because we are going to jump into what I believe is the word of the Lord. So John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 and 19 through 28. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Verse 21. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophets? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one 
you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. One of the things we know for certain about the ministry of John the Baptist was that he was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. He was sent to prepare the way for Jesus' coming. He was sent to prepare the way for Jesus' work and Jesus' ministry in the earth. In fact, all the Gospels agree on this about John, that he came to prepare the way of the Lord. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Zechariah, John's father, when John was finally birthed to an elderly couple, he sings a song over his son. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, he says, And to you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Interestingly about this, John the Baptist's prophetic message in fulfilling his calling to prepare the way was for people to prepare the way. So Zechariah looks at his son moved by the Holy Spirit. He says, you're gonna prepare the way of the Lord. Then John comes on the scene and says, hey, listen, I'm gonna prepare the way of the Lord by telling you to do what? By to prepare the way. And I think that's what God is calling to us day in and day out. He's asking us as his people to prepare the way for the work and the coming of God. Matthew chapter three, verse three, this is he speaking of John who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. See here, John is speaking to us. John is speaking to the people, prepare the way. Luke says the same. It says in verse 4 of chapter 3, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, this is John, saying, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Jesus. As I said already, I believe that this call of John remains as relevant and applicable today as ever. God is continuing his work of coming into the lives of people currently, right now, as we speak today, as he was when he came in the flesh as a baby and in a manger. And I also think that what we see here is a principle of God's kingdom, that we are called to partner with God by preparing the way for God to come and for God to work. We simply prepare the way, whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's in the lives of our friends and our family, maybe it's in our workplaces, but I don't know if God is necessarily calling us to do his work. I think he's, he's calling us to prepare the way for him to do the work that only God can do. 
And this is part of what Advent is really all about. It's taking the time to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus in joyful remembrance of Jesus' first coming in the flesh in worshipful recognition of his breaking into our lives today and in hopeful anticipation for his second coming to set all things right. When we understand this, the only way that we can respond to John's call for us to prepare the way is to ask, how do we prepare the way? The Bible is filled with stories that show us the way of preparation. The Old Testament contains a myriad of stories and prophecies that prepare the way for Jesus. Prophecies like the one that was read today. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Or Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the prophecy that prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. It changed a mindset of a people so that when Jesus came on the scene, they could recognize who he was. The prophecies and the stories of the Old Testament prepare the way for Jesus' coming. And I believe the same about the New Testament for what Jesus wants to do today in breaking into our lives. This morning, I want to utilize a few stories surrounding the coming of Jesus and John the Baptist that help to paint a picture of how we can answer John's call to prepare the way of the Lord. The title of my message this morning is The Way of Preparation. And what I want to tackle are three steps and stories of the way of preparation. I had six steps. The Lord spoke. <laughs> the first step is to seek and surrender. We prepare the way by seeking and surrendering. This is the story of the Magi's journey. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. This is the only gospel writer to actually mention the Magi. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, not a lot is known about the Magi. It's the Greek word for wise men and kings. But there are several traditions that hold to a number of different options. One tradition believes that the Magi were uh, Babylonian astrologers. And as I was meditating on that, I thought, where, where is Babylon in relation to Bethlehem? And, when we, they, and roughly, it turns out, it's about 800 miles Distant. Another tradition holds to the idea that the wise men were from Persia, wise men from Persia. And 
Uh, I looked that up, and it's about 1,457 miles from Bethlehem, so a little bit further. And then another tradition actually has a document uh, written about 100 years after the book of Matthew is written, and it says that they, they, they kind of submit that they were, they were kind of mystic monks from China, which is about 4,000 miles. Now, I, none of these... can be confirmed, and we have no idea. But what we can assume, I believe, is that wherever they came from, it was a distant journey. See, the life of the Magi represents both seeking and surrendering. They leave everything behind to follow a star. Oh, look, a bright star. I'm going to follow it for thousands of miles. That sounds like a good idea. I'm going to leave behind everyone that I know and love. I'm going to leave behind my status as a magi, a king, a wise man. I'm going to leave behind all these things. I'm going to gather up money and frankincense and myrrh, and I'm going to travel for miles upon miles. Listen, they didn't have airplanes. They didn't have cars. They probably rode some camel or donkey or what have you and walked. And needless to say, it probably took some time. They risked their safety. They risked their very lives traveling this great distance. And even going against Herod, as we see in Scripture. I believe what we see here in the Magi is a fervent heart seeking after Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13 says, You will seek me and find me when? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. This Advent, let us renew the fervency of our seeking. When set alongside the seeking heart of the Magi, how does our own seeking heart fare? Especially in light of a season filled with the busyness of gifts and parties and work and bonuses. Make time. We prepare the way for the coming of Jesus into our lives and into the sphere of reality when we make time to seek after him with fervency. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, After they, speaking of the Magi, had heard the king, King Herod, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I submit to you this morning that in worship, there is by necessity surrender. And that worship without surrender is at best a distant compliment and at worst, lip service. 
True worship of God is a surrendering of all that we are and all that we have in recognition of the one who's worthy of it all. That's what worship is. It's a giving of worthy praise to something in differing measures based on what we believe about the worth of that object. And we will surrender our time. This is, and I believe this is why we can look at our lives and, and, and really evaluate and determine what is it really we're worshiping because it manifests itself in surrender. We surrender our finances too. We surrender our time too. We surrender our emotional commitment too. Answer those questions, I believe you will find the things that you truly worship. And when we don't surrender, we are essentially saying that whatever it is we're worshiping is not worthy. When we don't surrender to God, essentially what we are saying to him is that he's not worthy. Seeking and surrendering both are steps in the way of preparation in that it prepares a place for the King of Kings in our hearts and lives. It prepares us for his coming and it prepares us for the way of his work. The second step is humility. Preparing the way for the coming of Jesus comes in the form of humility. This is the story of the prophet's answer. In John chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, it says this. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now, this should sound familiar to you, as it was the primary text that I read this morning. But I'd like to read it again, so please follow me. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? As I was studying this passage of scripture, I read that John, the author of this gospel, who is not John the Baptist, focuses on this idea of John the Baptist as less than Christ. So much so that many scholars believe that John, the author, was writing this in response to people who may have continued to follow the teachings of John the Baptist and not Jesus. Which is why in just a few short verses previous to this passage, in verse 15, it says, John testified concerning Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So we see what John the Baptist is doing is he's elevating. And what John the author is trying to illustrate is that John only came as a precursor to Jesus. That Jesus was the point. John, in response to the question of who he, who he was, responds by pointing away from himself as though he were saying, you're trying to make me the centerpiece of your need and your desire, but I am not it. What am I trying to tell you this morning? 
We cannot prepare the way of the Lord until we're prepared to get out of his way. Let me just say that again. We cannot prepare the way of the Lord until we're prepared to get out of his way. And that's what John was doing. John was saying, listen, you're trying to make me the central piece to your movement, but I am not the one. Jesus is the one. I've got to get out of the way. He must become greater and I must become less. A number of years ago, I was in a season in which worship through the ministry of song was having a profound impact on my life. And it was at that time that I read this particular story that I'm about to read you now. And, and, and I had this moment of great clarity. And it's uh, John chapter 3, verses 26 through 30. They, speaking of John the Baptist's disciples, came to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who you testified about. Look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Stop. Okay, it's interesting to me that they recognize the testimony that John said, that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet what they're concerned about is everybody's leaving our ministry and going to his ministry. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, again, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. And then John takes a moment and he uses the illustration of the wedding banquet. And he says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. As I read this so, so many years ago, it occurred to me how disgusting would it be to attend a wedding and see the best man attempting to catch the eye of the bride. Just imagine this with me for a moment. How abhorrent and wrong for the groomsmen to try and seduce the love of the bride away from the bridegroom. I think too often we've placed ourselves, our wants and our needs at the center of our story, never realizing that our story, it's really his story. We've become the lead actors when we were only meant the role of a supporting actor. Somehow, in our pursuit of our story, our ministry, our destiny, our purpose, our American dream, we've become those lead actors in God's story, in God's ministry, in God's kingdom, in God's purpose, in God's dream. These are his dreams at work in the earth. Our lives have slipped into an orbit circling ourselves. And God has become like Haley's Comet something that shows up every once in a while that we ooh and awe over because it directly affects our lives. Then it disappears from thought because it has disappeared from sight. From the old, you know, the old adage has then become preeminently true of our spiritual condition. Out of sight, out of mind. This advent, 
Let's take time to prepare the way of God, to prepare the way of Jesus by making him the centerpiece of this season and further the centerpiece to our lives. At the risk of losing all authority and respect, let's put Christ back in Christmas. <laughs> you can laugh, yeah. My wife told me to cut that out, but I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> Finally, three, the third step in the way of preparation is peace in the season of the storm. This is the story of the prophet's cell. Many of us have walked through seasons of great difficulty. Amen? Amen? Circumstances that have wounded us, situations have seemingly surmounted us. Life has overwhelmed and overcome, and in the aftermath left us in doubt, hurt, and loss. You know, the Christmas season is notorious for the remembrance of those difficulties and wounds. More, even more so for the reliving of such difficulty, such loss. In Matthew 11, we see John the Baptist languishing in Herod the Tetrarch's prison. And in that dark and dank cell, he asks this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? This is, a, this is a surprising question to hear come from John the Baptist. I mean, just think about some of the things he said about Jesus in John chapter 1, 29 and 30. He says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John chapter 1, verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John chapter 1, verse 35, the next day John was there again with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And then, so much time later, he's sitting alone in the dark, awaiting his execution for preaching righteousness. And he asks, are you the one? I believe we're seeing John experiencing a storm in isolation and in the dark, resulting in great doubt. His whole purpose was to come and prepare the way of the Lord. What if he got it wrong? And so he cries out. He says, okay, disciples, you've got to go to Jesus and you've got to ask him this question. Is he the one or should we expect another? Did I get it wrong? Did I mess up? Listen, I don't mind being on trial for preaching against Herod's marriage to his brother's wife. I'm not, I'm not afraid of that. But what I am afraid of, did I get it wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Did I get it wrong? And some of us have jumped past the question and just stated with vitriol against ourselves, I got it wrong. And we've doubted and we've been hurt and we've been wounded. So the disciples of John go to Jesus directly and they ask him this question. We see the story in verse four of chapter 11 in Matthew. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Rather than, (laughs) this is just like God, isn't it? Rather than just saying, yeah, yeah, I'm the one. You know, let me just speak to your fear. Yes. Jesus goes, you know what? Go and tell him this. And I'm sure John's probably going, are those real stories? I don't even know. How can I substantiate that? I'm in a cell. That does not help me. But I think if we just take a moment and really consider what Jesus is asking of John, we'll see that God is giving John a key to peace in the storm. And that is, Jesus is saying, listen, I know you're, I know you're in doubt. I know you're walking through hurt. I know you're walking through loss. And I think, I believe God is speaking to us today. I believe God's speaking the same message to many of you who are in this room. I know that you've walked through some hardship. I know that there has been doubt about my love for you. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to take time and remember. I want you to meditate on how God has come through how all the, the miracles that God has doing. And this is what God is saying. He says, when you do that, what you do is you reorient yourself to the character of God. And you can have peace in the midst of the storm. Why? Because God has proven himself faithful. Not always in the way that we think. Not always in the way that we think we need or want. But how many of you have ever looked back on situations in the passing on and says, and you just said, dear God, thank you. I didn't understand then, but I understand now. And that gives me the strength to quiet my soul and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to the wounds of my heart. That is the Advent season. That, that is how we prepare. This is more than just candles. This is to remember hope. This is to remember peace. This is to remember joy. And I know that we're not all in the same place. And that we're not all all on top of Praise Mountain, just glorying and basking in the warmth of God's radiance. No, some of us are walking through hell. We're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But we light these candles so that we can remember the light in the darkened valley and that Jesus is with us. And he provides hope because his character is one of peace and love and joy. Let us prepare the way of the Lord. This morning, as we enter into the third week of Advent, I want you to keep in mind that all that you do can be a preparation for the way of God. When you give your gifts on Christmas morning, that can be a way you are preparing for God's truth to invade our lives. As I wrote out this sermon, it was my hope that in each of these steps, I'd give you some practical ways to participate in each step. But while I was meditating on how to do that and what practical steps I could give you, I was reminded of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus 
And he asks Jesus, what, did, what, did, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, listen, you know the commands. You know the practices. Do those. And the rich young ruler says, well, I've done those since my youth. And Jesus looked on him with love. Jesus looked on him with such love. And in that love, I think Jesus, he can see beyond the veil of his practices to his heart. And, and this is what Jesus says. He says, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give, him, give it to the poor and come follow me. Interestingly, this is not something that Jesus required of all his disciples. Peter, at the end of Jesus' life when he died, went back to fishing on a boat. Implication being he still had one. He didn't sell everything he had to follow Jesus. He just followed. Listen, the truth is seeking and surrendering, embracing humility, taking time to remember the works of God in your life are all going to look different for each of us. This week, I want to challenge you, exhort you to go, even as the rich young ruler did, directly to Jesus in the place of prayer and to ask him how you can participate in preparing the way for him this Christmas season.